I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Charlotte Jones Anderson is on the show today. She's the executive vice president and chief brand officer of the Dallas Cowboys, one of the biggest and most recognizable brands in the world, not to mention the most lucrative sports organization in the world. Charlotte is also the chairman of the NFL Foundation, and she is known as the most powerful female in the NFL. So Charlotte is in charge of the brand, technically. That star that we all know very well, that's for her to grow and and manage and really oversee. And when I asked her about her job and what it means to be in that role, she had the most unique answer I've ever heard when it comes to branding and what it means to be a brand. This answer should be in... Every textbook, I am going to get a transcript of this and share it as well because it truly is unique and so powerful the way that she describes a brand. And that's why I believe the Dallas Cowboys have done so well with their brand is because of this unique perspective. Charlotte is also the creator of the Salvation Army's Kickoff Red Kettle campaign, which is aired during the Cowboys Thanksgiving Day halftime show. And the way that she got this done and actually sold it into the networks is pretty incredible. Not to mention Charlotte's father, Jerry Jones, is the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, which you may or may not have known. Uh, But Charlotte shares the story and it's pretty inspiring how she was able to to actually get this done. And as a result, she's had a huge impact on a lot of lives. I have a disclaimer here about this episode. We struggled with our connection. We spent more than 30 minutes trying to connect in different ways virtually because the connection just was not strong any way we tried it. So the quality of this episode is not exactly to our normal standards, but I wanted to air it anyway because it's so valuable. The The content and what Charlotte has to say is, is worth it. So stick with me here. I apologize. If you've listened to all of our other episodes, hopefully you know this is this is not the norm, but it is it's worth just listening and tuning into her words. 
We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com and Why Not Now listeners get 20% off with code Why Not Now. That's all one word. And you can hear the story about Poopery in our interview with founder Susie Batiste. That's Why Not Now, episode 28. Poopery is also available at Target. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you had to ask yourself, why not now? Well, hi, Amy Jo. Thank you so much for having me on. I have a question almost every day or, or certainly poignantly throughout my career uh, because it seems like every every step along the way, there's been so many reasons of why not to do something as opposed to the reasons of why to do something. And I've learned along the way that the circumstances that surround your decision are never going to be optimal. And sometimes you just have to jump even when everything is not quite aligned the way that you anticipate things to be. Um, You know, we entered the NFL kind of in that circumstance. When my father bought the team in 1989, everyone told him, not it was financially not sound the team was not good there was all these reasons of why he shouldn't and passion and determination overrules some of that logic along the way and he's his conviction to wanting to be a part of the NFL is what caused him to go ahead and do it anyway uh, we faced that same situation when we built AT&T Stadium 10 years ago, and it was very much the same kind of environment, the same kind of climate. There was a lot of reasons not to do it, but we knew that in order to stay ahead and to keep inventing ourselves in new and different ways, that we had to do something unconventional and build a stadium that hadn't been done before in the way that we wanted to do it. Um, you, you take on the risk. Of, of dealing with financial uncertainty, of dealing with situational uncertainty, that sometimes you just got to have that high tolerance for ambiguity to keep going forward. Well, at that time, um, we went through the stadium situation. We hit in the middle of the biggest recession that our country had seen. And there we were committed heavily into building the stadium and spending more money than we could possibly imagine taking in and continued to finish the stadium until we got got to fruition and, and made it viable. Uh, after that event, my father had really lost a lot of his his desire and his risk-taking mentality to make another bold move like that. Well, just three years ago, we were presented with a really unique opportunity to extend our to a different location and partner with the city of Frisco and the Frisco Independent School District and build not only our headquarters, but a whole nother stadium, an indoor stadium that would be our practice facility, but also would serve the whole community of Frisco and be their high school stadium. That came with a lot of financial certainty, and my father had reached his risk limit. So he said, no, not now. 
And myself and my brothers and I had the opportunity to keep stretching ourselves and, and become something even better than we were at the time. And we knew that the timing was now and that we had to take on that risk to do something that was unconventional so so we could continue to, to remain relevant, but to be aware of, of what our fans needed, what they wanted, what they demanded, and to really change the way that we saw ourselves as an organization. In that process, um, from a financial standpoint, the city had earmarked a certain amount of money uh, to give to us to, to start the project. They also knew and hoped that we would invest so much more to actually bring it to life. We did just that, and that commitment that we thought we had, the budget that we thought we started with, became a one-dollar budget by the time that we had reached completion. And in that, in those times when you're trying to make those decisions and convince people that 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 vision and that expense of creating something new and different will be worth it, is a scary time, and 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 you really have to have to have that that passion and that belief that you're moving in the right direction when everybody else says you're not. Uh, And for us, we have been uh, fortunate to have this incredible facility that we have built here that serves really as the epicenter for the city of Frisco. The indoor stadium, 15,000 seats, serves as high school's home to everybody in Frisco. It serves as our headquarters. And in this, we've really been able to create our own Disney World, if you will, that people get a chance to be a part of us for 355 days a year out here at the Star. So that leap and that uncertainty of of why do you do it now, you know, sometimes that comes with um, a lot of, of uncomfortableness and and a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety that when you know and you set your sights on the goal you're trying to reach, you find a way to make it happen. That's incredible. And and the containers for entertainment and community that you and your family have created are are world class. And here you are as the chief brand officer for one of the most recognizable and lucrative brands in the world, and one of the most, if not the most powerful female in sports. Can you share with me some of your thoughts on branding, Charlotte? Because so many people listening, they're creating a company. This is their first entrepreneurial move, and you are a branding expert. Um, What are some of the just basics that you do to protect and grow that star? You know, that's that's such a great question. And, you know, I think about that a lot. That I'm not sure I actually like my title as chief officer because I've never really seen ourselves and our organization as a brand. Uh, Roy Disney once said that a branding is something that ranchers do to cattle mm. to separate one cow from the next because they look alike. So if you, you transfer that into corporate America and the world that we live in, you're trying to separate from the person next to you. Um, I don't really believe that we look like our competition with, with the Eagles and the Redskins and, and traditional competition the way that we see it. Certainly, we see them every Sunday or every Thursday night, and that is our immediate competition on the field. But for us, of how we see the Dallas Cowboys, you know, we're more of of a lifestyle or or a culture. Um, you know, people experience and connect to us in ways that um, 
that you you have to respect the value of of their connection far greater than than an experience that that you're selling. And for us, you know, that means how do we you know, we respect so much that people are so connected to what we do that we need to create for them, experience and find anywhere else, make them feel like they're a part of something that they can't get anywhere else. And along the way, find ways to continue to inspire them and and deepen our connection and our avidity with those who support us in many ways. And when you think about that, you know, it's it's always about understanding that, you know, we have a privilege of getting the opportunity to be associated with the National Football League, with football, with something that people are passionate. But in that, there comes a huge responsibility to take the interest and the magic work creates, but to do significant impact beyond the field. Venues that actually house our game and our excitement, those venues were only there 10 days a year. So how do we create that as an economic engine that our community can benefit from when we're not there? How do we bring people into the facility that might not be fans of the Dallas Cowboys, but once they get there, they slowly build a connection to who we are and over time become fans of the game and fans of the Cowboys. Um, when we built AT&T Stadium, they would come because they were interested in engineering or technology or art. And then if we got them in there, then we could expose them to who we were as the Dallas Cowboys. And I think, you know, the heart and soul of who we are is trying to tap in to the passion of the people that choose to look at us. And that is such a sensitive thing that you want to make sure that you're respecting who they are so that you can appreciate how to take them to the next level of engagement. And, you know, with the Cowboys, you know, everyone is always asked, you know, how do you make decisions to do crazy things like build a headquarters and, and build your own Disney world and, and engage that's so different than what is expected in the industry. And for me, it's always about how do we, you know, raise the bar on ourselves, that we create a level of expectation from our fans. And then the next step that we take has to be a higher one and a more engaging one. But we always have to remember that we have to honor the tradition that has created the those that brought us here, Tom Landry and Troy Aikman and all of those who created the aura and the excitement and the enthusiasm around Cowboys, that we are authentically about the tradition of the game. But in that, we also know that we're an entertainment property, that, that people invest, so they have to think about their daily challenges. They look at us as a respite, a way to take their family to something that creates a memory that, that will be meaningful and powerful to them way beyond the game. But we also know that it's a business. So we have to figure out how do we appropriately allocate our funding to be able to build the stadium, to field the players on the field, to create these, these experiences that truly benefit the growth of the game and the enhancement of the fan. But in all of that, we always have to be mindful that it's also about competition. Our fans actually are only interested in if we win the game or not. Mm -hmm. They're only interested in how is that player going to execute on the field. So we have to respect that that's why they're coming. So we have to deliver on that point, too, and not think that one of the others is more important than the level of competition that we're, we're competing at. But on top of all of that, then you've got to remember that innovation is key to everything we do. 
people are consuming our content in ways that that we never even dreamed of when we first became fans of the Cowboys. You watched it on TV or you went to the game. Now everybody is getting it in such different mediums, in, in fast times, in little small windows of time, and they have so much competition for content that we have to figure out how do we deliver it in a way where they are, when they need it, and when they want it that is compelling and more compelling than their other options. And finding out how to pull all of those together and make big strategic decisions to move yourself forward is really where the secret lies. And, you know, sometimes you don't know what what direction that's going in every morning when you wake up, but every day you're thinking about that. So you're constantly projecting into the horizon to, to figure out new and interesting ways to engage people. Charlotte, oh my gosh, total mic drop right now. That is the best description uh, as a classic marketer who went to marketing school, whatever, 20 years ago. That is the best. I want to take this transcription and put it a PDF or a book or something. Every marketing professor, this should be a Harvard business case study. It probably already is. But that's why <laughs> I, I have chill bumps because you know, as we hear and talk so much about this word branding and what you just described is an emotional feeling and the respecting the value of connection and everything else that comes with that. Wow. Okay. I I literally am having kind of a career moment at the moment. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Because I have not heard it articulated like that. And I'm not just saying that as someone who you know, has interviewed a lot of of people. So it explains why the Dallas Cowboys are what they are to me. I think that really under helps helps us all understand. Um so they and, and I talk a lot about personal branding in what I do and what I've done and helping, you know, Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Shaquille O'Neal and all these these athletes and celebrities build their personal presence. And that's often what I say is you don't brand yourself, you are yourself. And that creates a quote unquote brand. And anyway, so thank you. I would love to just take a moment and switch gears. So I used to work in the NBA about 10 years ago and I had a a female boss, um, SVP, and I really enjoyed working for her. And one day she said to me, Work, family, self, Amy Jo, choose two. You cannot have all three. Trust me, I've tried this. And here's the thing, Charlotte. I know that she was thinking and and wanting to kind of help and maybe even mentor me is that she thought she was doing me a favor. And she didn't mean this in a negative way. But of course, maybe it was a generational difference, but I've never, ever thought that way. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, not necessarily can you have all three. Um, Of course, it's possible, but as a female that's thriving in business, who works primarily with men, and I've been in that situation most of my career as well, I've never really thought about it too much, but that conversation and, and topic and question constantly comes up of, do you do anything specific to navigate that? And what advice do you give to other women who are looking for guidance? What are your thoughts? Well, I will, I will tell you this. That's such an interesting conversation because, you know, that is something that, you know, I definitely uh, think about a lot. I, I encourage the women that work for us in the Cowboys a lot when, when they're 
trying to navigate the the whole scene. You know what what actually completes you as a person that you value value most, and and that ever present question of can women have it at all? And and I have always that women can have it all. I think the difference is maybe it's not all at the same time. And when I say that, I don't necessarily even mean at points of your career, but it is the daily evaluation of yourself. We find our angst in our, we wake up and we look at ourselves and are we able to justify all of what we're trying to do? Do we give ourselves a break of, I'm the best of me I can be today. I may have burnt the toast or bought the cookies instead of made them, but I went to work and I was successful there. I may have failed a little bit at home, but tomorrow I'll be better at home and, and adjust how I do it at work. And I, I think for me, it has always been about the power of self. I think often women are our own worst critics and we don't give ourselves any break. And, and we have this level of expectation that everything we do has to be perfect, that we have to be able to deliver at this high level because that's what's gotten us to that position in the first place is being our absolute best, being able to, to manage our, you know, it's like, and, and, and when you're, you're true to, to manage your day and, and your own anxiety around your day, you know, so, sometimes things go really great at the office and they don't go well at home. Or sometimes things go really great at home and they don't go so well during the day. But we need to step back and go, that's true for everybody. That's not just women. That is men in general also. I mean, that's everybody's own challenge. It's just that women are harder on themselves than men are in, in regards to trying to figure out a work-life balance. And for me, all of the things that you mentioned at the beginning, work, family, self, I absolutely have all three of those things. The one that's the hardest is the self part, because we all know that we put our own self on the back burner every time because everything else is more important. However, I define myself from the value and the love I get from my family. So it's very much self-fulfilling to be engaged with my family as much as it is also engaging and self-fulfilling to be successful at work. I love that. I, I love what I do. I love my family and I find myself in both of those. And I think we just have to, to give give our own selves a little bit of a feel critical about how we define what success actually looks like in each area. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I kind of look at it as like this uh, Venn diagram where there's purpose, passion, and skill. And it seems like that you are truly living in that intersection because where they collide is I say is where bliss resides. And one other quick question on, on this topic I found myself in the past, and thank goodness I kind of real, realized this, is that I would overcorrect a bit and maybe skew a little further masculine than, than I actually am in terms of masculine traits, thinking that I needed to match and do that to work with men. And it wasn't a good look. I actually thought it would be a good strategy, and it's... Um, I found I was actually giving up a lot of my power. Do you see that happening um, around you and or do you have any advice on that? Because it, 
I, I kind of thought I had to play a game there for a while when I look back at 10 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. I totally identify with that. And I, and when I served as national board chair uh, for the Salvation Army, and in through my term of service there, I went around the country and spoke to different groups all over the place. And when I would get up and speak, it was always a mixed crowd, male. male. And afterwards, women would come up to me and say, I am so thankful that you wore a dress and that you were feminine, but you had such bold things to say. And I came in and act like a man to be heard. And it had never really hit me that way. I was very fortunate growing up and all through my work career that my father has treated me the same way as my brothers, that everything, you know, he had you know, more confidence in me than I ever had in myself. So he was like, lead with who you are, lead with who you are. And I've never questioned that about myself. And, you know, I love fashion. I, you know, I love all things that are girly and feminine and everything about that. But I'm in a very powerful, tough environment surrounded by men. And I have a voice. Mm. That's a great transition. I would love to talk a little bit about the Red Kettle campaign and the fact that the Cowboys kick this off soon here. And just your role with the Salvation Army and your idea to take it to a live broadcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and just what it means to you? Yes. Well, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, which I, I think is really interesting when, when we're passionate about what you um, and And for me, you know, that has always been about how do we take what we do at work and do something significant with it? that is beyond the field. And that in, in and of itself, that's where the why is. If, if, if we do our work with purpose that is meaningful, that affects change in a manner that you never saw coming, and that is significant. So how do we take with the Cowboys that we play football, we have all this energy and we, we attract all these eyeballs. How can we take what we do on the field and all of that attention and visibility and partner with organizations that are making huge impacts in our community, that are changing lives and are recognizing the most destitute and doing something about it. How can we merge those two together and really make a significant impact in the community that surrounds us? And that was actually how the Red Kettle campaign evolved. Back in the 90s, when we were winning all these Super Bowls, everything was so exciting and everybody was talking about the Cowboys all over the country and everything was super positive. And then one of our players made a very unfortunate decision off the field, and the headlines changed. Everything was negative. It was about what this player had done, and everyone's mindset about who the Dallas Cowboys were changed overnight. And with that, we recognized that if people were as interested in what we do off the field as they are what we do on the field— then we had a responsibility to do something significant that we needed to partner with an organization spotlight with them so that more people would become aware of what they were doing and could make a bigger impact across the country. And with that, we went searching for an organization that, you know, it couldn't just be anybody. I, I think this is really important to make because we needed to have a, an organization that had a national, if not international scale, um, but we needed to have an organization that we could trust that had a foundation of integrity that was doing things the right way. Because if we were going to come in and shine a huge media spotlight on them, they better be have their house in order. They better be doing things the right way and 
be able to stand up to the scrutiny of the visibility that we thought we would bring to them. Well, I found myself in a meeting with Frito-Lay with the gentleman who happened to be the national chairman of the Salvation Army. And he asked me during our meeting, he said, you know, the Salvation Army's biggest challenge is their humility. It's their greatest asset, but it's also they don't go out talking about all the great things that they do every day and how many lives they've saved. They just go to work and they do it. We need a mouthpiece for their action. And there I realized that we had a game every year that was on Thanksgiving that was a national audience. And I felt like if we could um, create a national launch to their fundraising effort, which is all the red kettles that go out around the holiday season and really kind of hone in on the effort and make this national launch, then maybe we could increase the awareness and then and inspire more people and they could raise more money and make a bigger impact. Well, at the time, I was like, yeah, you just want to go to New York and meet with like the president of NBC Sports? I was like, yes, yes, I absolutely do. This is the only way we can get everybody to talk about this. And so he ended up giving me this meeting. I went to see Reba McIntyre, who I had met along our Super Bowl run, and asked her to cut a song to perform at halftime. She donated her to me. I went to New York with her music in hand and was sitting there preparing for my meeting the next morning when my dad walked into my my room. And he, all my notes and everything were like spread across the floor. And he looked down at him. He's like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm getting ready for this meeting tomorrow with Mr. Eversall. And I'm so excited. And, and he kind of took one look at my mess. And then he took one look at me. And he said, you know what? I'll handle your meeting tomorrow. So I grabbed all my stuff. I put it up. The next morning, we were, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue, go up to 30 Rock to the top floor and walk into Dick Ebersol's office. And as he was saying hello and my father was saying hello, Mr. Ebersol looked at us and he said, what are you here? My dad took one look at me and he said, I told them all that the Army was all about, our obligation to tell this great story, to use the visibility and airtime so people would get inspired looked at me and he said, you know, no one has ever walked into my office and asked for airtime for free. I said, well, I am. And I hope that you would support this cause. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll air your halftime if you go to the NFL and get an extension on halftime, which had not been done before. As a matter of fact, the league is always trying to shorten our game window as opposed to expand it. So the Super Bowl was the only thing they had ever done like that. And so I had to go get approval there. And he said, you need to also produce a show that is worthy of network television, and I'll air your show. If the show is not good, I'll just cut to commercial. <laughs> so I looked at him, and I shook his hand, and we walked out the door. And as soon as the door shut, my dad grabbed my arm, and he goes, did you know what you just did? And I looked at him, and I said, I just got my first nationally televised halftime show. And he said, no, you just got over $12 million worth of exposure for the Salvation Army. And then he looked at me very seriously and he said, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> and I'm like, nope, but I will by the time Thanksgiving gets here. The Salvation Army raised over $2.4 billion through the Red Kettle campaign. Now that is taking the visibility of a simple football game and in inspiring millions to give to help millions more. And that is probably what I'm most proud of. Rightfully so. And I absolutely love the story. I, I also love when I was researching you and your dad called after you uh, were 
pretty quickly out of college, it sounds like, and I think you majored in human biology, um, and said, hey, uh, can can you come yes. back to dad? First of all, can you tell me what hot pants are or biker shorts? Because that was the era of, you know, change and fashion. And, and then he asked you to come and stay, and you said... I don't know how to do I haven't done this before. And he said, don't worry about it. I don't know how to do it either. Or something along those lines. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but yeah. similar situation is you figure it out. I'll figure it out before Thanksgiving. Watch me. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Well, Charlotte, yeah. thank you so much for your time today. And um, yes, bearing with me with the technical challenges and your stories, I could just talk to you for hours. It's so valuable. And um, we will be watching. We will be ready. And uh, yeah, congratulations on your journey. And, and thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for letting me be part. And I wish you all the best. And good luck to you. Hi, everyone. If you are digging this podcast, please subscribe rate and review on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it means a ton to us. Also, after recording more than 100 episodes, I've created a bit of a cheat sheet on the top five things I've learned from renegades and how they get from idea to action, from dreaming to doing. I will email you the downloadable PDF when you subscribe to my newsletter. Just head to amyjomartin.com and click on connect with me. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now?